talk to you, and I hope I can just talk. Uh, I, something happens to me. There's a spirit that comes over me when I'm on a soccer field or a basketball court <laughs> or baseball field uh, or, indeed, watching the Tar Heels on TV or watching the Panthers on TV. Something just, it's like a coat comes on me, and I just, I go crazy. It, it's that, not the Patriots. Yes, I do go crazy watching the, the Cheatriots. No, the Patriots, and uh, I lose my throat. And so yesterday I was uh, willing my children, my kids, my, my team to victory, which they won. They won a battle in our last game yesterday, four to, four to three. Man, I feel like I'm stepping on a minefield. And uh, so I don't have a whole lot of throat. I don't want to yell at you anyways. Um, uh, Bishop Johnson was a man that I traveled the world with, and many of you were there the Sunday he came and he said the Lord had laid on his heart that you don't, you don't preach at sons, you talk to sons and daughters. And I mean, I'm for preaching. What he meant was you don't have to yell to get your point across. Now, to be sure, if I get excited, I'm probably going to yell a little bit, but it's not yelling at you, it's yelling because I can't contain the goodness that comes over top of me. It's been often said that we are a worship community, True Vine Worship Center. In fact, many of you think that True Vine Worship Center uh, was a name that I gave the church, but it isn't. In fact, Tony Bunton, my father, my late dad, had said years ago, I want to change the name to True Vine Worship Center, but I'm not going to do it until it's a worship culture. Did it, is that what he said? And so we felt like at his passing, when we came through some uh, some hard times, man, maybe just mute all the other mics. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a frequency thing. Nobody's doing anything wrong. The batteries aren't dead. It's just a frequency thing. Got a lot of cell phones and stuff in here happening too. Um, but that we would change it to True Vine Worship Center. And indeed, we've made that, that turn, that switch where, because here's the deal. When, they, when preaching ceases, we're still going to be worshiping. When prophecy ceases, we're still going to be worshiping. In fact, when that, which is, when that which is perfect comes, then all this part-time stuff, it'll be done away with. But we'll worship forever. Now, Sarah told us years ago, worship is not a song. It can be expressed as a song, but it's not necessarily, not necessarily a song. Give, bring me another microphone. I'm not going to listen to this all morning. There he is. Thank you, Isaac. Isaiah seems to think that it has something to do with cell phone interference and the, uh, the frequency. He can figure that stuff out. Now, we're a community of worshiping believers, and there's power in worship. I'm going to read some of my notes, and I'm going to read from Joshua. We worship him in song and in word and in dance, and long after preaching has ceased, we're going to continue worshiping him throughout what we understand as eternity. So what exactly is worship? What it lifestyle? Right. Right. Worship really is, if you could break it down into two words, it's worth ship. What is he worth to you, or what is it worth to you, or what are what is she worth to you? Depending on what you worship. That that would be an English rendering of the word worship, but it's not the original understanding. The Hebrew word for worship literally means to prostrate oneself before whoever or whomever it is, the object of your worship. Lay down, face forward. Literally, to lie down to a greater. When we worship, we are engaging the reality that He is great and our entire focus is Him and Him alone. Don't miss that. When our entire focus is on Him alone, then He fights our battles. Now, we live and believe and preach the finished work. And here's the work that's finished. Jesus came to finish His work. And at the cross and at His resurrection, at His ascension and His coronation, He finished His work, but our work's not yet done. Well, what happens is in the New Covenant community, 
we, uh, we misunderstand the completed work of Jesus as being the work for us is completed. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Because after all of that, Paul still says, Your enemy, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You ever read it? That's New Testament. Not God's enemy. God don't have enemies. Who can possibly be an enemy of God? The in, the, we, we have this long understanding that the enemy is like an equal opposite to God. God is ultimate good. The devil is ultimate bad. And they're going to battle it out. And hopefully God can eke out a victory. Oh, no. No. No one can challenge him because he is the creator. In him and by him all things consist and exist. In fact, the Bible says, if you read Revelation, that when we look back, we'll see the enemy and say, well, you mean this little peon, this little pipsqueak, this little mouth with a microphone is what we were afraid of? This is the one that terrified the nations? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's not God's enemy, but he is your enemy. And he's seeking whom he may devour. How does he devour? He devours taking small bites, the same way you eat an elephant, a chunk at a time. What does worship do? Worship changes our focus from fighting the enemy to worshiping him and allowing him to fight our battles. Does that make sense? I want to get to where I'm going to go. I, I, know, I know we're pressed for time. Remember when the children of Israel were about to sack Jericho, what did God tell them to do? What did he tell them to do? He said, get the archers together. You know, you did get, the, get the archers together, get the, you know, get the swords and get the shit. No, you know what he said? I'm going to read it to you, Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because, the, because of Israel, and no one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Now I'd like to stop and pause there and say that's where the New Covenant Church would say, Well, man, the victory's won. But there's no victory won yet. God has given it to you, but it's yours to, to, to take a hold of. Has Jesus won the victory? Absolutely. But if Jesus has won the victory and all the works are done, why were Nanny's knees ever bothering her? His work is done, but it's our job to take a hold of what he's done for us and apply it to our lives. Jesus had no problem walking on water. In fact, he appeared, he disappeared, he walked on water, he floated, he, did, he was transfigured in a cloud. He did these things. But Peter had to walk on water when Jesus said, come, he had to act. He didn't just get up out of the boat by the word of God and float out to Jesus. No, he had to take a step. And the Lord said, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do this for six days. Also, seven priests, seven speaks of completion or perfection. There are seven notes in a scale. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti. Do. But, but do, is, do is eight, but it's also the first note on the next major scale. How many colors are there in the rainbow? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. How many days are in a week? Sunday, Monday, two. When you think of seven, you should think of completion or perfection. And so he says, have seven. Have some, have some mature, have some perfected priests go before you. And you're going to do this for six days, and they shall carry seven trumpets. I don't have time to get into all the typology of it. Of ram's horns before the ark. The ark is the ark of the covenant where the glory of God resided. Then on the seventh day, you will march around the city seven times, and the priests shall, sh shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people are going to run in with their swords and shields. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what it says. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
You're going to run in and kung fu them to death. It shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout. The New Testament says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal as you suppose, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. You know what opens up and does more warfare in your life than anything else? Your worship. That's why it's an emphasis in this church, because it's as you worship and as your focus becomes Him that the glory emanating from Him fights your battles for you. How You don't even see the enemy. You have no, no way to see the enemy because you're prostrate before the Lord and your eyes are fixed on Him. When they're fixed on Him, you're not afraid of anything. It shall be when they make the long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will not just fall down but fall down flat. It will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. It shall fall down flat. Flat is the Hebrew word takath, which means depressed, pushed down. Which means when we worship, depression leaves us. When you worship, depression leaves you. <laughs> and it falls down, and the mountain in front of us falls down. The, it, the word is not just takath, but it comes from the root word toak. Work with me here. And that's from, that means to depress or to humble. So when we humble ourselves before God, He humbles our enemies before us. When he, we humble ourselves before God, I mean, this is, this, is, this is transliteration. When we humble ourselves before God, He humbles our enemies before us. Here's what actually happened on the seventh day. Children walk around sevens time, and, they, and the priest blew the horn. They blew the trumpets. If they were, here, when you hear about the trumpet blast, don't think of Gabriel stepping on a cloud. Think of a clear, precise word coming from the throne of God. Just, I'm not suggesting that all that's bad. I'm just saying think of it this way. Don't put everything off into weird eschatology. Let it be for now. When they heard a clear sound from a, from a mature word, from like you're hearing right now, when they hear that, then they shout. And here's what happened. Honest to God, literally God himself sees Jericho and says, oh, they've come to worship. So I'm just going to sit down on this thing. It didn't, the walls didn't just fall. They literally were pressed into the ground flat. There were no walls left. They didn't, have to, they didn't have to stumble and, and rumble over a bunch of rocks because all of it had been depressed into the ground. That's what happens when you worship, when you walk in. And, and by the way, the word Jericho means fragrance. It's a sweet-smelling savor when you worship the Lord and let the Lord fight your battles for you. He'll just sit down on the mountain for you. He'll sit down on your walls for you. You've come, you he'll, make, he'll make your enemy depressed at your victory. <laughs> he'll depress your walls straight into the ground. Amen. See, the entire issue is, is where is our focus? That's the issue. When we, or when Peter decided to walk on water, he was perfectly fine, as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus. Perfectly fine, had no issues, no problem. On water, crazy, right? Well, that don't happen. Well, it could. He's walking on water. But the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks at the, the, beating, the beating waves and hears the winds that are about, and he takes his focus off of Jesus, what happens? 
He starts to sink. Thank God he had enough sense to say, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, man, get up here. Picks him back up. The issue of worship is the issue of focus. Really, a lot of what worship does is it's us exalting the Lord, telling him things that he already knows about himself. He doesn't need that. God doesn't want your worship as much as he wants worshipers. Because worshipers equal people that are surrendered. And people that are surrendered can become intimate with him. Jesus never said the Father seeks worship. He says, no, the Father seeks those that worship him in spirit and in truth. Remember he was talking to the woman at the well one day? And he said, you, you worship what you know, but we know what we worship. And he said, the hour is coming and now is that, that the true worshipers, true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. He seeks worshipers, not just worship. God does not have uh, an identity crisis. And you need to tell him, we magnify you. You're great. Did you, what is, have you ever said that, we magnify you? What is we magnify? Does, does anything get bigger by being magnified? I'll talk to you for one, just a few minutes. Does anything get bigger? So when you were in science class, I, pre, I spoke at the, uh, at the Bible Association event with uh, Brady Johnson and uh, Jim Staples a couple of weeks ago. And my biology teacher walked up at that. She didn't know she was there. I, I didn't know she was still alive. My goodness, she's like 300. <laughs> and sweet Miss Whitley, if you went to West Iowa High School, you, you'll, you, Becky, you had a sweet, lovely lady, loved her. We dissected a frog, me and a buddy of mine, David Heinz, and threw the knee, the knee, Quanda, don't you tell our friends about this, and threw, the, and threw the leg of the frog into the fish tank, and those fish ate that, and honest to God, I think they mutated. Weird. And this sweet little Miss Whitley stood there and says, uh, my biology, she, she, said, she said, well, I must say, Mr. Bunton, I said, yes, she said, I never would have thought in a million years you would become a minister. <laughs> yeah. But in her class, when we were dissecting frogs and doing whatever we do, we'd pull out the magnifying glass, or we'd pull out the microscope, and we'd put whatever object that we want to focus on and whatever we want to see more clearly in the magnifying glass or under the microscope. And it appeared as though the thing we were looking at got bigger, although it never changed size. What changed was our perspective. And so when we say we magnify the Lord, you're not making him bigger. He's just bigger in your eyes. What you're saying is I refuse to focus on circumstance. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Look at him. Focus on him. Let him be the object of your affection. And when he's the object of your affection, when he is the one that you're focused on, all of your enemies fall out flat and depressed before you. This isn't revelation. This is just good news. I'm almost done, see? I kept it to five, note, five pages of notes today. When your eyes are fixed on him, the impossible becomes ordinary. When our eyes are fixed on Him, impossibility dies, and impossible becomes I'm possible. Yeah. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, the sin wasn't just eating some fruit. Listen to me now. The sin or the mark missing was believing a word other than the word that came from their father's mouth. That's where they missed the mark. It's what the serpent did. It's what the serpent does. He comes and says, Hath God said that in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And then he says, God knows that in the day that you eat of that fruit, you'll not surely die, but your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Here's what the enemy says. If you want to be like God, you got to do something to be like Him. 
Here's what the Father says. I created you in my image and after my likeness. The truth is they were already like God. The lie is they had to do something to be like God. It was that way in the garden. It's that way in 2019. You may know it or not or believe it or not. You're already made in the image of your creator. You're like God. The lie, and unfortunately it's coming from behind podiums, is that you got to do something to be like God. As if God has some kind of cosmic chalkboard and checks off when you do good and then erases it when you do bad. The Bible says that love and God is love keeps no records of wrong. He's not keeping score. He's not keeping score. He's just wanting you to change your perspective until he is the object of your affection. And when, when, when he's the object of our affection, when we magnify the Lord, all of our enemies fall out. I mean, it's the crazy thing that God would tell in, in multiple times, his army, the army of Israel, let the worshipers go first. In fact, there was one time the worshipers went out first and they started singing, the Bible says, the song of victory. No battle was ever fought. You know what happened? God is my witness. The enemy said, well, they're singing the song of victory. Well, I guess that means we lost. And they turned around and went home. Honest to God truth. Wait a minute, they're singing a song of victory. They hadn't done anything. But what they did was they thanked him before he did what they thought they should do. What we say is, Lord, if you'll show me, I'll believe it. The Lord responds, uh-uh, but if you'll believe it, I'll show you. If you'll believe it, I'll show you because the currency of the kingdom is faith. If you want to see faith become action, if you want to see faith become substance, remember I told you years ago, and Rennie told us, faith, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If you read that sentence backwards, things not seen become evidence, and things hoped for become substance when your faith becomes now. You pull the reality of the spirit realm, which is the heavenly realm, where all things are done. If I were to ask anybody on any type of denomination in the world in a Christian church and say, do you believe that in heaven anybody's sick? They would, you, you, they would say, no. No one's sick there. Is there a disease there? No. And there's not. Is anyone unhappy there? No. But the, the problem is they've put off all of that until the afterlife. And Jesus said, the, in, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I am come that you might have life. The implication is now and have it more abundantly. I didn't just want to come and make a way for you to get to heaven. I wanted to bring heaven to you so you can live that way here. <clears throat> when your eyes are fixed on him, the impossible becomes ordinary. The impossibility dies and impossible becomes I'm possible. The missing the mark in the garden was believing a word of the Father. In fact, they communed with the Father in the garden daily, speaking and listening to Him, or communing, not just communicating. Communing with the Father. The Bible says that the voice of the Lord God would walk in the cool of the garden. And they knew who they were because they heard what God said. They knew who they were because they allowed the word of God to define them and not the word of men. And certainly not what the serpent was going to say. You don't let the serpent talk to you, do you? I was coming home from Mexico on my second missionary trip to Mexico with Sidney Smith, who was a real man of God. And on the way back, he said, well, you've done a good job. And by good job, he means while I was in the senator's house, that's where he slept. I slept in a tunnel, in a cave. No kidding. A cave. Didn't know till I got there. Flew up, fly into Houston, drive there. And fly from there to Puerto Vallarta, go from Puerto Vallarta up northeast to uh, Tepic, a city called Tepic, which is essentially, I think it means nowhere. I mean, I'm looking around like, man, this is, okay, this is cool, but I got property. You know, I got Sid, 
preacher, Brother Sidney Smith, but I'll stay with him. He says, oh, Joshua, by the way, you're going to stay here. And I looked over, and there's just like this hole in the, in the, in the side of a mountain. And I said, oh, okay, well, where are you staying? Well, I'm going to go stay at the senator's house because i got to talk to him about some business. I'm like, so, okay, I got you. When I went to that house, no lie, the, stair, the staircase in this house was about 10 foot wide and goes up two or three stories. It was the week, to put it in a uh, time frame reference, of when they caught Saddam Hussein because we saw it there. When they caught Saddam Hussein. It was that same week. And I'm, lay, I'm sleeping in a tunnel. And on the way home, he says, uh, all right, well, you served me well. You've done well. I preached, and we, we'd go out to a dump. There was, um, I don't remember, thousands of acres worth of landfill trash, but they don't cover it over. It just stays out there, and it's just disgusting, maggots and bugs. And what we would do is we would take coolers full of uh, uh, tang and juice and stuff like that and offer sandwiches and drink to the women who were in that trash picking out food for the day. By the hundreds, I'm seeing these old women. And they're collecting food from the refuge so they can feed their families. So what we would do is we had, there was there was a, a, a like an arbor, and we would set up, bring the coolers and the sandwiches, and offer them sandwiches. And while they were eating, we tell them about Jesus. But we didn't just tell them; we showed them. You know how we showed them? We said, "Here you go. Here's a sandwich. Here's here's you a sandwich." And he said, "Anyways, we're coming home from that trip." He said, "You served me well." He said, uh, "I want to tell you something, Joshua." He took me to Genesis, and he said, "What did God tell Adam to do?" I said, "He." to dress and keep the garden. He said, so if Adam had done his job, I don't think the serpent ever would have gotten to Eve in the first place. And he said, I can tell you right now, the serpent will not get to Miss Judy because if it comes within 10 feet of Miss Judy, I'm going to take the sword of the Spirit and chop his head off. The reason that he told me, because at that time, Elizabeth and I were only about two, two months worth of married, and he knew there'd be a serpent coming to talk to me, trying to talk to her and everything else. And I can promise you, before a serpent ever gets within 20 feet of that woman, his head's cut off because I don't, I don't allow that. Not just for my natural wife, but your soul is the feminine part of who you are. It is the suke, some, in a joking way, we would say sister suke, especially since we're in the south. I don't know if they'd go over up north. Mark, would it? Probably not. Sister suke, before you allow the enemy to talk to your soul, which is your mind, your will, your affection, your appetite, your conscience, you better cut the head of that thing off. That's, that's just the truth. They knew who they were because they heard what God said. It was as they offered worship, perfect communion to the Father, that they received the blessing of His voice. You better hear that. That's why the enemy challenged what God hath said. Remember, he says, hath God said, you shall not die, or you shall die, but he knows you're not going to die. You can always tell a snake by the way they move. They move by slithering and twisting. You got somebody in your life always twisting other people's words, you pro they're probably empowered by a snake, and you might want to cut that head off. Here's how you cut off. You know, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. You ain't going to believe what this person said to me about this one and begin to twist stuff. You can always tell it's a snake because they twist stuff. No, I don't want to hear that. You should get enough boldness to say, you go talk to somebody else about that. That's my brother in Christ. And they might have issues, but we're going to have them together. And, and your issue is you twist stuff. You, you're, you're, you're being empowered by the voice of the serpent, not the voice of the Father, because he don't twist nothing. You can always tell that you're talking to a snake because they move and live by twisting. Even in the New Testament, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, the enemy was twisting God's word. Remember, he came to him. The Bible says Jesus goes down into the, 
I'm almost done. Into the river Jordan, he comes up. The Bible says that John says, and I saw heavens open. And a dove, uh, the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove, and it lighted upon Jesus. And I heard a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And straightway, Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This is your Bible. To be tempted by the devil. Who drove him into the wilderness? The Spirit. Because before He's going to choose you and before He's going to use you, He's going to test you. And the enemy is simply His dog on a chain that does what He's told to do when He's told to do it for our qualification's sake. But anyways, we'll leave that part alone. And Jesus is in there and the enemy says, uh, when Jesus is hungry because He's fasting, 40 days the Bible says He's fasting, He comes to Jesus and says, if you're really the Son of God, essentially if you're who you think John said that you are and the voice of heaven said you are, command this stone to be made bread. And Jesus said, he answered back to him and said, But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Essentially what he said was, there's more part of my body than just my body. I've got a spirit and I've got a soul part. And, and, and a lot of us are wrecking our lives because we feed this natural flesh, but we don't feed our spirit. We eat three meals a day, a snicker on the way to work, six cookies on the way home, a bag of chips before we go to sleep, and 17 Cokes, but we feed our spirit about a half hour a week on Sundays and wonder why we got issues. Can I just talk to you plainly for a minute without you getting mad at me? This is pastor appreciation. Now be nice. Just kidding. Oh, we feed our, and that's good. I, I mean, yours truly. Last night, I went to the gym. I worked out, worked hard. Went straight from the gym, a quarter mile up the road to food line, and bought four packages of cookies and a gallon of milk. Oh, E-D-D-I-E. That spells Eddie. <laughs> Speaking in tongues now. Four packages, so I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at you. I'm saying that's what we do. But I eat more than 30 minutes a day, uh, week on Sunday. I'm not going to have my flesh weighing so much that, it's, that, it is, that it is absolutely choking and exhausting my spirit and my soul, which is what we do. Jesus said, man, don't live by bread alone, but by every word. He would tell his disciples, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. If thou be... The Son of Man. Jesus replied, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. That's where we get our life. Our very sustenance is from His mouth. Listen to me. The preceding word, the promise, the prophecy. Not just what has God said, but what is He saying about me. Remember He told David, I've chosen you from among your brothers to be king. I'm going to go here and then I'm going to be done. I know you're ready to go and I am too. Jesus, uh, the, Lord, the Lord told Samuel to go down and anoint David to be king. You know this. And David, he's an anointed king. He comes, he's an anointed king, but he doesn't become king right away. That's, that's a lot of us miss it. We think that our anointing qualifies us. No, your anointing qualifies you, but it's the marriage of anointing and maturity that attracts the crown of glory and authority. Because David didn't get one crown. He got three, but he didn't get them until he was 30. 30 is three tens. It represents full maturity. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebraic culture, a man was not fully a man until he was 30 years old. He worked for his father from the time he was 12 in Bar Mitzvah until he was 30 years old, and then he was considered a full-grown man. That's why Jesus didn't even start his public ministry until he was 30 years old. That, that's why Joseph didn't come up out of, out of the pit until he was 30 years old. That's why David was anointed king until he was 30 years old. It speaks of maturity. And so you're anointing enough. Ain't, it's not going to qualify you. 
It's great, but you're going to have a greasy, you have nothing, David lived for, for 17 years with nothing but a greasy head. But it's the, it's, it's the marriage of anointing with maturity that attracts the crown of authority and glory. I need to write that down. I should probably write that down. So he tells David that you're going to be king. David winds up being in Saul's house. Now Saul was not God's king, but he was the king the people clamored for. I promise you, I really will let you give me five minutes and I'll let you go. How many people give me five minutes? That's five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30. Okay. That's an oldie, but a goodie. I never used it, but I figured I'd give it a shot. And he's in, he's in Saul's court, Saul, the king, that heard the women of, of Israel singing in Jerusalem, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul does not like David because anytime that God breaks something that he's ordained that shouldn't be key, the old order will always take shots at what God's doing right now. And so the Bible says that Saul takes his spear, he takes his javelin to throw at David. Listen to me now, I know where I'm going. Throws it at David and Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now Benjamin was the smallest of the tribes of Israel but the most fierce. And if you read historically, you can read in your Bible that if they were to throw a spear or a javelin or sling a stone, they ain't missing their target. They're going to hit it. And yet when he throws his javelin at David, he didn't know that standing in between him, the javelin and David was a prophetic word that came from God's mouth and smacked that javelin aside and said, oh no, you can't have his life because I'm not done with him. That's what a preceding word does. Some of you have been walking and wondering, how did I make it this far? The enemy should have taken me out and he's taking his best shot because God ain't done with you yet. This is where I want to encourage you a little bit. This is going to be your best chance to say amen this morning. Some of you, the enemy should have killed you when he had his chance, but he took his javelin through. And you know, Matthew, that you should have gone under. You should have been speared through the heart by that. But there was an unseen hand that said, not yet because I'm not done with him yet. That's what a preceding word does. I can't preach. I really wish I could. One day Saul threw his spirit, David, and it should have killed him. But what Saul didn't see was standing between him and David was a prophecy. And when the javelin was about to kill David, the prophecy smacked it out of their way. I believe I'm looking at some worshipers in here, and your enemy has thrown spears at you uh, uh, and thrown spears at your heart and tried to take your life. But the prophecy, the promise you received said, not yet. You should have died, but the preceding word came out of the mouth of God as a response to your worship and flattened your enemy. Good God Almighty. You should have died with what? the doctor told you but you're still here because God ain't done just yet you should have lost your mind with the twisting and the lies they told on you but you're still here because God ain't done yet come on somebody the enemy should have killed you when he had a chance but the prophetic preceding word that come out of God's mouth said not yet I'm not in fact you have no idea the end of this thing will be greater than the beginning the enemy looked at Mark Sanchez and took his best shot. And the Lord said, oh, not yet. I'm not nearly done with the prophetic word that's going to proceed out of his mouth and touch the nations. The enemy threw a javelin at Robin just a couple of weeks ago because Robin has the audacity to put little brats in their place. The enemy did his best shot to throw his javelin at you. And the Lord said, I'm not done with her yet. Your little javelin means nothing. Some of you are sitting here and the enemy is taking his best shot with your health or with your finance or or you've gone through a terrible divorce. Or you, God don't hate divorced people. God hates divorce because of what it does to his people. 
God, it don't matter if you've been married one time or four times. If you love God and you love the person you're with and that's who God put you with, you, maybe all that other stuff was so you could come to, 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 to now, uh, until now. But God ain't throwing you off and say, well, man, that girl's really messed up. Now, if you've been married seven or eight times, you need to see me after church. Because what I'm thinking is, why are we going back around this mountain again? You know what I'm saying? That's like eating four packages of cookies and thinking you ain't got to, you're going to stay healthy. <laughs> Guilty as charged. I thank God for having six kids. They keep me skinny. You can't buy cookies with six kids. Get to the house, you put them on the counter, you go use the bathroom, you pour your glass of milk, and 90% of them are gone. I said, you're grounded for the rest of your life. Don't even come into my room. You're banished from my presence. Be gone. And the worst one is sitting right up there with, a, with for some reason, a toboggan on. Now, he looks good. The enemy should have killed you when you had the chance, but you're still here. And a large part of the reason that you're here is because at some point in your life you had the audacity to worship in the midst of the worst circumstance of your life. You look up here in Sunday morning services and you watch little Rachel dancing. Rachel's not up here dancing so that you can say she's cute. She could care less if you think she's cute. She's up here dancing and we're going to allow her to and anybody else a child to so that they, because they're comfortable in the presence of the Father. They should be. You go to a place that sits children down when they begin to worship, you might want to think about going to a different place. Or help them out to get themselves fixed. Jesus was teaching one day that a bunch of children came to him and decided, man, get them kids away from him. Shut up, shut up. Jesus said, what are you doing, man? Look at them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. The King James says, he says, suffer the little children. Allow the little children to come to me and don't forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. Let them come. We're going to let them dance here. We're going to let them worship here. Some of your biggest victories in your life were won when you were flat on your face with your focus on nothing but him. Not fighting a battle, not praying God will fight it for you, but say, Lord, I just magnify you. Remember the word magnify, I just magnify you in this place. I put my focus on you. You are the, you are, you are the, the sole purpose of my life. You are, you are the object of my affection. You are everything that, and it, it, what happens is you lose yourself in his presence, and his presence washes away the Jerichos in your life. And before you know it, the thing that stood before you becomes a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Because Jericho literally means fragrance. That's what the word means. When God sits down on your, on your wall, it becomes a worship. It becomes a fragrance, a sweet-smelling savor. Let's all stand. William, come play something on the keyboard. Or, you know what? I love you. I don't want you to. Eli, come play something on the keyboard for me. Eli's our piano player, and he's been practicing. And uh, I really feel like this, the Lord's going to put something on you while you play this morning. But uh, that's not the focus. Some of you are going through the biggest uh, traumatic battle in your life. Some of you are facing physical uh, things in your body. I know because I've talked to a lot of you. Some of you, your minds are so tormented, it don't matter what happens to your body. Your body will follow suit if you don't get your mind straight. Some of you marriages, give him some volume on this piano. Some of, some of you, your marriages have fallen apart. Some of you, your children hadn't spoken to you in weeks. Some of you, your husband and wife drove together in the car, but, and on the whole way here you fought, and you know when you get back in the car the whole way home you're going to fight. This is what this opportunity is for. You come and worship the Lord. Magnify Him with me. Let Him become the object of your affection. Not as an ulterior motive. We're not worshiping Him so He fixes stuff. We're worshiping Him because we love Him. But the byproduct of worship is His presence will wash away all the stuff. When I was in India that time, I, I simply sang a song before I sang it as I barely had turned 20. I said, we serve a five, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight thousand people, a lot of people there. 
He said, we serve a, a living God. And he's so alive that, you know, he makes the blind to see and the deaf hear. Just, just kind of really spouting off stuff I'd heard before, which was true, but I'd never seen. And then I'm over here on this side of the stage videoing and filming, taking pictures. And I get a tug on my shirt when they're doing a healing line. Hundreds, if not thousands of people had come through the healing line. Tug on my shirt. It's an interpreter. He said, man, this guy wants you to pray for him. I said, the prayer line's down there. I'm the cameraman. I'm not the anointed preacher. I never wanted to preach. Not really my gift. No, no, but you said before you sang that you worship a God that can make blind people see. And I said, yes, I did. And I looked, he stepped back and said, well, he'd been blind for 34 years. And I looked at this man, had his pupils were stood looking straight at me and eyes were pussy and red it was gross and I thought oh he said he wants you to pray for him so God will go ahead and heal his eyes I was utterly terrified and thought oh my God because I said something that I didn't really understand because I'd heard somebody else say it and I told him I said no but the prayer line's down there he said but you're the one that said it so I put the camera down and I just embraced the guy in tears I said Lord I'm so sorry I apologize to God I'm sorry because I don't even know what it's like to live blind. This guy's been this way 34 years. I don't know what to say. I, I, Barbie, I did not have a prayer memorized that I could pray over. I really, I didn't have, really probably had no scriptural context because I wasn't well studied then. I knew the scriptures. I'd taken a few, a few years of Bible course, but I didn't know stuff. I'm a kid. And I said this, I'll never forget. I said, but Lord, if you don't heal him, I, I apologize to him. I said, I'm sorry for telling him that, but if you don't heal him, he's going to think, that you're just another one of the dead gods that they worship here in India. They'll make a god for anything in India. If they want it to rain, they'll they'll create a little wood object, make it a god, pray to it, and when it rains, they give it honor. If they want a god for harvest, I mean, there are millions, literally millions of gods in India. And I said, if you don't heal him, you'll be no different than the rest of the gods over here. So, if you can do something, I mean, it was really that basic and simple. When I stepped back, as God was my witness, that man's eyes had straightened. His pupils looked right at me, and it scared him and scared me worse. About scared the life out of me. I mean, he jumped back, and I did too. Like, oh, my God, this really works. God's, he's really alive. He really heals people. We talk about it, but we don't believe it. We sing, I believe you're my healer. But then we live sick and, don't, and, and, don't, and just think, well, we're just going through it. We'll get over it in a week or two. Well, I'm 62. My knees ought to be worn out. No. If he's your healer, bring that healing into now. Some of you don't know how you're going to pay your bills this month. I know some of you. Some of you, I, I know that. I, I really, marriages keep coming back to me. Some of you, marriage, and it doesn't mean that you don't love your husband or you don't love your wife. It just means the enemy knows that the most powerful thing that will ever happen, the closest resemblance of, of Christ in the church is a husband and his wife. And so that's why he likes to attack that because if you can get a man and woman that love the Lord in unity, nothing will be impossible. Well, right now, I'm just, I want you to turn your affection to him. Turn your, turn your attention to him. If you have to close, a lot of us have to close our eyes so we can shout all the other stuff. Turn your focus to him and say, Lord, I, in this moment, I magnify you. You're not getting bigger. You've always been the size you are. You've all, you're, you're, you're limitless. You're matchless. You're omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. You're everywhere at this, all, all places at the same time. You know all things. You have all power. I'm not magnifying you to make you better. I'm magnifying you to make you my central focus. I know that you want good things for me. 
I know that you would have me of sound mind, that you want me to love my wife and my wife to love me. I know that you want me to be able to love and provide well for my children. I know that you want this sickness to leave my body. I know that you want me to be able to enjoy my days. You said that you came, that I could have life and have it more abundantly, and I haven't been living that abundant life. I'm asking you, Lord, to let that abundant life wash over me as I worship you. Let this wall that stood before me, let it come down simply by my worship, by my shout, by me opening my mouth and saying something myself. Because nothing happens in this realm until something is spoken. So Lord, in this moment, we ask you, that you receive our worship. We ask you that you help us to hear with our ears what you believe about us. Give us boldness to push away the twisting spirit because that's the spirit of serpent. Help us to receive the revelation that we are made in your image and after your likeness. You're our daddy. If you're our daddy, we have your DNA. That's biblical. And if we have your DNA, then inside of us is all that we need to accomplish the purpose for which you put us on the earth. I thank you, Lord, for the impact this place is already making and has made. I pray, Father, that the ripples in this place get bigger and bigger and bigger as we magnify you and glorify you. That the smoke of the cloud will be seen, Lord, not just in other cities, Lord, but for generations to come. Thank you for that. Thank you for this being the house of Zion. Love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Hey, amen. Amen.